0: I want to begin by thinking of our dancing this morning, but with all these memories, it stirs up my own. We meet each other, I want to suggest tonight, in our brokenness, in our grief. And so I realized I want to share, unplanned, I've decided. Uh, There's another story of dancing I want to begin with, and then I'll get to the dancing story I intended. Um, When my mother passed 27 years ago, um, and she died suddenly, um, I, I had a dream the night before her funeral. And in that dream my mother, who had had issues with mobility the last few years. She had circulation issues, and it was just hard for her uh, to walk. It was hard for her, you know, if we went on a, on a trip together, we would want to hold back for her. And she said, no, 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 keep going. I'll, I will catch up. You know. Uh, but in this dream I had, uh, the night before her funeral, she came over the hill dancing with all these children, She loved kids. She loved kids. Um, Which was of great comfort to me, going into that funeral. Just my mother dancing in this next chapter. Um, And unfortunately, uh, my kids did not get to meet my mother face to face. My My oldest child was born a year and a half later. In fact, her... Well, gosh, almost two years later, and her, her middle name is, is, is my mother's name, um, but uh, she did ask questions about her, and she was very curious about her, and one morning when, I don't know, Lizzie was five or something, my oldest, she woke up and she was very excited, and she came in to tell me in my bedroom that, that she'd had a dream of Grandma Sally. Daddy, Daddy, I saw Grandma Sally. And I said, what was she doing, honey? She "She was dancing with all these kids. (laughs) So I think of that dance tonight. And I also want to think of this dance. Uh, We were dancing earlier in rhythms uh, to uh, some Greek word, and we didn't know the meaning, right? So, inspired by that, I want to offer you another Greek word tonight. And this word is anastasis, anastasis, I'm not sure, okay. And I want to ask, do you know what it means? But somebody in here knows what it means, yeah. And it's, it's translated in the New Testament as resurrection. But what it means literally is standing up. And I love that. You might think of it as an ordinary resurrection because the resurrection, capital R, glorious as it is, is an important thing to embrace. But I also want to embrace ordinary resurrections. There are people, millions of people, for whom waking up and standing up in the morning is a miracle an amazing thing and for many of us depending on where we are in our journeys that kind of simple standing up is its own incredible gift of grace gift from God and I have a story when I entered I was entering the one year anniversary of Lorraine's diagnosis. Four and a half months of my, my kind of my own uh, stations of the cross. Between the end of April and the middle of September, there are many, many, many events. There are many, many, many markers. And a year ago, a year ago in May, um, it was really high time to do something about the garden. Now you've already heard about The shower drain. Um, An even bigger piece of of Lorraine's contribution to our household was her incredible gardening. She loved it. In spring and summer months, if people came, she wanted to be sure to give them a tour. I really did not do much at all. I have to say, I must confess, I did mow the lawn. I did some weeding. But I didn't know what was what. And in fact, when she was diagnosed, part of what tipped us on to her being sick was that she had this pain in one arm and she she really couldn't use it. So it was hard for her to get the garden going in 2017. So friends came over and helped. A year later, I'm looking at just the, the, whatever you call it, the stuff, the old stuff left over from the winter. It has to be dealt with. And I didn't know what to do, and I could tell, even when I thought about it, I would get verklempt and just think, oh my gosh, this is, this is Lorraine's stuff. This combination of feeling incompetent and feeling very sad all wrapped together. But one day, on a very pretty Sunday, I came Uh, I was home from church, home from various activities afterwards. And I said, I've got to at least start. I'm going to reach out to friends. I'm going to mobilize the troops. I'm going to get folks to tell me you know, what steps to do, what should be planted or left alone and all that stuff. But for now, let me just simply take a rake and begin to get this thatchy stuff up. And I started to do it, and I just sat down. I just kind of collapsed, to be honest, and, and had a good solid cry. Because it was just so sad for me. Now, around that moment, my driveway goes up to the backyard, is right next to my neighbor's driveway that goes to his backyard. His name is Billy Sullivan. Billy drove up. And he popped out of the car like he would often do, just saying hello over the chain link fence. Said Burns, "Hello," and I couldn't talk. And he saw that I was down on the ground on the bench. And he figured out pretty quickly what was going on. And he got his own rake, and he got his wife Susan, who came over with her own rake and a little bit of food. And they came over and had that food there if I was hungry. And then Billy just started raking. He didn't say much. He didn't really have to. His actions certainly spoke louder than any words could. But what he was helping me do was to stand up. Just to stand up. That's what I needed then. An ordinary resurrection. And my neighbors helped me do that. My stories over the last couple of nights have have been have tried to tell you that where I am right now is if you remember again that that the drawing I, I made in the air. You know, this first place, this disruption in Valley, and the second place, the second naivete, this bright sadness, this deeper time, this happy-sad-both space. And I'm, I'm, I'm here on my way to there. And I feel God's help. I feel Billy's help and Susan's and so many others. So I'm getting there. Because God is good. But I want to comment on uh, on this, what I'm learning from this place a little bit more. The stories I'm sharing um, affirm and remind what I know you know. God works through people even when we offer very imperfect things like garlic bread, and songs out of pitch and literacy that is not complete and human beings that are tainted and flawed and cracked. But I wanna push harder and I wanna be clear. What I'm learning is that this is not just a matter of God working in spite of all those imperfections. What I'm learning is that God works through those in perfection. God works through those cracks. God meets us and, and dwells with us. God calls us to love that and work right there. God God works through and in and because of cracks. Naming and loving from those hurts is part of my mission and I want to suggest tonight our mission. And this is my title. Brokenness meets brokenness. Paul again to the Corinthians. It's the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians and he's just named that while he wants to be perfect, he has this thorn in his flesh. We don't know what this condition or ailment or crack is, but it certainly has Paul's attention. After naming it, he says this. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this thorn, that it would leave me, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, I am strong in the silence. I told you last night about my journey to fourth church about that call and skipped ahead to describe some of our beautiful beautiful people I want to say a little bit about the early days Um, I went to this church and was obviously a brand new Presbyterian pastor and this is what this church was what they called then a redevelopment church it was a hundred and whatever years old and its glory days were behind it like a lot of uh, mainline Protestant churches in big cities, its numbers had, it had, had been big another time, but they sure were not big now. Um, and in fact, the church had almost closed. They were down to a dozen people. By the time I came, it was like two dozen people. Um, and there was some denominational money to try to you know help it out. But let me tell you, they <laughs> Harvard Divinity School does not teach a whole lot about how to... Evangelize and get new people. Um, and you know, you could argue mainline Protestant denominations aren't very good at it either. Um, and so I was learning all sorts of things from all sorts of places to try to just say, what, how do we do what we want to do? And I'm not really into being one of those places that is only about getting all the numbers you can get because that just does not ring my bell. I mean, I, I'm about coming together and getting excited about mission and purpose and the gospel. Well, here was one of my first teachers, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did not know people uh, pers- that I was not aware of, of, friends in that situation. I may well have known them. Um, but I had these AA meetings that were meeting in our church hall. So I hung around them and learned. And I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned as that is that this fellowship was meeting a whole lot of people outside of churches and religion The churches and religion were not meeting. And what really moved me and touched me was how people would gather and they'd tell stories and they'd laugh and, yes, they'd swear, but more than anything, they were being honest about their junk. They were being honest about, not cracks, chasms in their life, some of which were because of bad choices, some of which were because of just what they walked into in their life, what they they dealt with. But it didn't really matter. What what mattered was was they were honest in their hurt, and they met each other in that hurt. And, of course, they went through the steps. Ultimately, if they're listening to Bill W., toward a relationship with God. It was really, really helpful for me to see that. Now, if I can flash forward a couple of decades, really, I have a number of of people in recovery in my congregation, and I continue to learn from them. In fact, once a year, we do a group where we explore the connections between the 12 steps of recovery and the steps of the Christian faith, and we just kind of explore that. Um, And that has, we, we do that once a year as an official church study, but from that has sprung another group Some friends, some in the church, some in the broader community, wanted to start a group in our hall that they call the Seekers. Now, Seekers is not, strictly speaking, a 12-step group, but the folks there are, are all generally familiar with the 12 steps. The purpose of the Seekers is to be able to talk about recovery and be very explicit that they're talking about God, a relationship with God, spirituality, because some folks feel like if they go to this meeting, maybe that's okay to talk about, or this meeting, maybe it's not. And, I, and they asked me for permission, and I said, yeah, baby, yeah, go for that, yes. And they also, this started again in, in that, that time, uh, actually, it was the months right after Lorraine's passing, and they wanted me to come by. Um, people like it, the host pastor is there. I kind of put it off and had other things I was doing and was in the fog that I described the other night. But eventually, it was actually their last night of 12 consecutive weekly meetings, and they were going to take a break for a little bit. And I said, okay, I'm going to go. And my full intention was to sit there and be quiet and just listen and just learn for the hour. I just, I know sometimes they they want a wise word from me, you know, and I'm, I did not have wisdom. Uh, did not feel I did. And I just sat there. But it was a remarkable conversation. And it was in the last, oh, 15 minutes or so, this man that was two chairs down from me took a turn to talk. Um, I'm going to call him Wally. It's not his real name. I'll call him Wally. And Wally has, I could see, and learned a background pretty different from my own. Um, covered in tattoos. Lorraine would never let me have a tattoo. And, <laughs> and that's not going to be my thing anyway. Um, pretty matted hair. And a few years out of a pretty hefty stint of time in prison. And what he shared was a moment that was, I don't know, eight years prior, several years prior, that he was just very much on on his heart that day. And it was the death of his wife. But in his case, he was telling the story of wearing his prison garbs and being in chains and being led by the guards to a place uh, and transported to a place where he could identify her body. And he just named the pain of that and processing and healing. And of course, this went right to the core of my heart. And so while I had every intention not to say anything in that meeting, I decided I should share. And thank Wally for what he was sharing. And name that, because the theme of the night was gratitude. um, Name that I was trying to get a place of gratitude. I believe in gratitude, but it's just kind of hard. I'm I'm working on it. And the meeting came to an end. And Wally came and embraced me. And other people who had shared stories, just as powerful as his came and comforted me. Um, And after that hour, I felt a little bit better. I felt like I could more readily stand just a little bit. And I'm in awe of that. I'm in awe of that. When people can name their brokenness and meet each other in their brokenness, somehow, mysteriously, there can be healing. How is that? And if you'll let me preach just a little bit, I know I'm not supposed to, I really think that's the gospel. I'm a Christian because in my understanding of of God as Jesus teaches us, God is not content to be on the sidelines feeling great pity for these people that he loves. God is not content to just, I don't know, blow more breath and blow more spirit and just be concerned from, no, God, like God rolls up God's sleeves and steps into it and suffers. I think of them that, that centerpiece of the gospel according to Mark, Mark in chapter eight. Jesus is with the disciples. And at one point, Jesus says, do you know who I am? And they try different attempts. They name, you know, Elijah, blah, 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 blah. And finally, Peter, star pupil, gets it right. It says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. It says, bing, 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 correct answer, right? And Peter's feeling kind of good, right? Jesus goes on from there to say, understand this, that the Messiah will be betrayed, that the Messiah will die. The Messiah, I will suffer. And star student Peter says, oh, let me take you aside and correct that. You don't understand, Jesus. The Messiah has superpowers. The Messiah doesn't suffer. And you know what Jesus calls him? Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You do not get it. You do not get God. God is not about be faithful and everything works out. God is not about just on the high moment. God is, is with me saying, I am going to be here where people are most cracked. Don't forget that at that time, Rome was brutal. I know in our mind, we picture three crosses. That's our holy image, but the, the reality, The political reality is that there were hundreds of crosses. And Rome used capital punishment to set an example and make sure people would be quiet and keep down. It was up there to terrify people. It's the worst, the most brutal aspect of our humanity. And God walked right into that. Out of love for us, And out of the brilliant insight that somehow when people, when spirit, when we can meet in those vulnerable places, healing can happen. Redemption can happen. Salvation can happen. I think we know that. But a lot of times we kind of stuff it and act like it's not true. I had an experience, oh, a few weeks ago. The weeks are blurry right now, but it was definitely this summer. And I was feeling just some of the sadness of summer for me. As I already shared with you, there are many markers this time of year that make me think of, you know, just remind me of the, the path we walk together well, Lorraine and I and our loved ones um, and and sometimes when I'm feeling sad I just let myself feel it and sometimes I kind of fight it and get grumpy you know and just kind of do more work and do more stuff and just kind of keep marching because there's plenty to do for Jesus at my church you know there's plenty to do and I'm busy but I was feeling it and it was kind of wearing itself on my my soul and one morning I just took I hadn't even really taken enough time to pray and listen, but I finally did one morning. I just sat. And I sat and looked out the window, channeled various meditation spots from various camps. And it's not often that I hear very clear words, but I I heard a pretty clear message this time. And the message was, let me help you. Let me help you. And I felt convicted. If I were to elaborate, I would say, "All right, yeah, I gotta, I gotta make some space." And I did. And actually, it, it, I can report, it, I felt better. I mean, I just, I just had a different perspective on that day, and and the day after, I had this great experience of uh, going down the street from my church to the subway station. Uh, it's a few blocks away, to the Andrew Square station. Um, and there is often, uh, there's a group home, mental health Department of Mental Health group home on that street. And some of the folks come up to church for a cookout, or some come from worship, or, you know, we're from, I'm familiar with some of the folks. And there's one guy, uh, Morgan, bless his heart, um, who camps out across the street from the group home right on my path to the subway station. And he is a panhand, I mean, he collects donations. Um, and and he will do it fairly aggressively sometimes, not in a mean way, but just in an insistent way. Um, I mean, once I was, I went by and said, hey, Morgan, and says, hey, I um and I said, well, Morgan, how about I take you to Dunkin' Donuts, which was right around the corner, and I get you a coffee. And he was so excited. And we're walking to the Dunkin' Donuts and he says, will you get me an egg sandwich, too? And I said, yes. And then we get into the Dunkin' Donuts and we're ready to order and he can you get me a donut too? <laughs> and I said, yes, but not the fancy kind, all right? Just kind of a regular, your basic donut. Uh, anyway, and now, now there's sometimes depending on my mood, and I'll see Morgan is camped out there, and I'm just I've done. I've given to enough other folks along the way. Say, right, I'm going to try to avoid this, but this particular day, after my prayer, um, I was actually coming up the other way from the subway, um, and so I was still, I don't know, 50 feet, 30, 40 feet away from him. And I said, Oh, he's ready, you know. And I pulled out my wallet. I said, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to give him something today. And then so I had my wallet out, and, and then he caught my eye, he saw me and said, "Hey, Rev, you know?" And I don't know it's because he was happy to see me, or he was happy to see that I had the wallet out. <laughs> um, um, but he met me, and he just gave me the best hug. Yeah, You know, best dollar I ever spent, you know? Because it was exactly what I needed. It was healing. It was healing. There is, I want to go ahead and introduce somebody that's become very, very important to me. Um, And I'll probably do a story now and then kind of take some more tomorrow. Um, I went to a commencement, my niece's commencement, uh, at the Rhode Island School of Design earlier this year in May. And the commencement speaker was somebody named Brian Stevenson. Um, how many of you have heard of Brian Stevenson? OK. Um, Brian Stevenson lived in Boston in the 1980s and went to Harvard Law School. And I just learned this week here at camp that he was at church with Carol and with Jonathan, maybe some other folks, uh, which is awesome. Grew up in the AME African Methodist Episcopal Church in Delaware, I believe. He's a church guy. Um, And a killer piano player. Uh, CNN has a documentary on him. And oh my gosh, you can hear him play in there. Boy, is he good. Um, And when he was in law school, he took upon himself as a mission to defend, decided to start defending people in the South, especially, on death row. Um, The least of these. Um mainly african American men, but not exclusively because that's the real reality of people on death row um and anyway he's he's he he spoke about that and his work and our mission at this commencement, and it completely grabbed me i I have a new hero, I have a new hero that's what I keep telling folks and uh, he's created the Equal Justice Initiative Institute, and he's devoted his life to this, and he wrote this book called Just Mercy some years ago. And I'd heard about it for years, but after hearing him speak, I decided to get a copy and read it. And he describes the many, many, many cases he, he works with, and he describes this ministry of brokenness, meeting brokenness, and at some point, later in the, late in the book, you get, he describes a moment when he was just about done and burnt out, because you're seeing very, very hard things. The cases, each individual case, is is heart wrenching in all kinds of ways, including the injustice, including the pain here and the pain there. And by the way, he's gone to supreme the Supreme Court umpteen times, won landmark cases, and has had dozens of honorary degrees. He's um, one of those MacArthur genius awardees. I mean, this he's an accomplished person, incredibly. And he gets to this point in the book, and he describes uh, just about being burnt out. And then he tells the story of being on the phone with a client who is on death row with significant, and he has significant uh, mental disabilities. And the man has a stutter and is very frightened. And the stutter gets more and more intense. And Stevenson recalls, he flashes back to a story from his youth when he was going to church every Sunday. And at church, As a 10-year-old, there was one of his friends who brought a relative to church, another boy who was 9 or 10 or 11. And this boy, this boy who was a visitor in the church, had a stutter. And Brian Stevenson remembers laughing at that. And also, no sooner had he laughed that he saw out of the corner of his his eye that his mother saw that and gave him a deep and profound and icy stare and called him over and talked to him. And there was a mixture of embarrassment and shame and conviction and said, this is what you need to do, Brian. You need to go to that boy and you need to say you're sorry. Then you need to hug him. And then you need to tell him that you love him. Go. And Stevenson describes going there with this group of other boys around and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for laughing. And they kind of nod. And he looks at his mom as if maybe that would be enough. And she says, well. So he, he does an early version of a man hug, you know, kind of, you know. Kind of one of these awkward hugs. And he's kind of awkwardly hugging the boy, but then he feels the boy quickly and sincerely hug him right back and hold on. And, and Brian knows he still has to do that third piece. And he says it kind of, you know, half-jokingly, and, uh, you know, I, I love you, man, you know. And the boy holds him tighter and whispers in his ear without a stutter, I love you too. And Stevenson writes about almost crying when he was 10 and holding it back, but then flashes back to this phone call with the man on death row, and he can't hold it back. And what he writes is, I do what I do because I'm broken too. We are bodies of broken bones. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by things we would never have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. We have a choice. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing, or we can deny our brokenness, forswear compassion, and as a result, deny our own humanity this is the gospel we meet each other in brokenness and incredibly mysteriously mercy is possible salvation is possible healing is possible There's so many stories, and I only can do one more. Here's the one I'm going to do. There's a movie out recently called Amazing Grace. And it is the film, it is the filming, filmed documentation of an of an unbelievable album that Aretha Franklin recorded, I think in 1970, 71, 72, sometime around there. She was top of the pop charts by then. Absolutely top, but her roots were in the church. Her roots were gospel music, of course. So they set up this live uh, recording over two nights, a Friday night and a Saturday night. I remember the album. My brother gave it to me when I was in college, and there was a whole year where I listened to it every other night. It's a great album. It's an amazing album. But I ne- never knew there was a film version of it. So I, on Good Friday this year, I went to go see it that night. That's when I just, I had a chance and I felt, I felt the need and I went. And it's an amazing movie. Fairly simple footage. And the church, the church is some storefront church. I don't know, the Greater Love Tabernacle or something like that in South Central Los Angeles. And you see it and right away you recognize, oh, this is an old movie theater. You know, you can see the acoustic tile. You can see where the, the, the little windows, where the projectors were. This is where Aretha Franklin, the Aretha Franklin, is recording a live album. Andre Crouch is there, another superstar from the gospel world. It's an incredible thing. And the church's local choir is there to sing. And they're, they're great. And clearly, they've, they've whipped together some arrangements, and they're being fairly scripted the way they need to be, you know, while still loosening up here and there. But, you know, they're kind of doing what the director has told them to do. And, and Aretha is amazing, you know. And there's two nights of footage. By the second night, you can tell the word is out. The first night, it looks like everybody, it looks like people just saw in their bulletin, oh, we're having a special concert. Aretha's going to sing. Okay, I'll be there. You know, it just looks like the church regular's there. Second night, there's Glitterati. You know, Mick Jagger is in the audience and some other rock stars. Like, the word is out, you know. um, And they're there. Um, It's actually the first night that's the most amazing, though. By the second night, her father is there, some famous preachers, and you can see Aretha's a little bit stiffer. Still amazing, but stiff. But the footage from the first night has this moment where she's singing Amazing Grace. And if you know enough about her biography, you know that Aretha is, is well acquainted with suffering and abuse and hurt and brokenness. And she sings... One vowel and maybe 28 syllables in that vowel. And it's unbelievable. And you just hear the hurt come. And you can see the choir effectively throwing away whatever script they needed to follow. And they were just answering her. Just just saying yes, and singing, and shouting, and clapping. And, and I swear what you're seeing is hurt meet hurt and make this unbelievable music and this unbelievable healing and this unbelievable redemption. See, the second night was a wonderful concert. The first night, that was church. That was church. Church. when we meet each other and we share and we name our hurt and when we do that we can help people stand would you help me? we help people stand and we can practice that We can practice sharing and meeting in our grief that we share tonight, in our sins that touch our lives, because in the silence we bring, in the silence we pray. And to the altar we bring all our lives and the cracks that touch everything. On our knees, in our thirst, as we are, we sing like it's Easter. say Hallelujah